Okay, so we're going to be in Romans, um, Romans chapter 5 today. We're going to be reading a whole lot of verses today. We're going to read like a whole two verses, so get ready. It's going to be a long one today. Um, t- the title of today's sermon is, What Now? And I'm going to start with some review. And then we're going to read the verses from today's teaching, and then we'll pray, and then we'll continue. But just to kind of recap, and I can't keep doing that every week, but today you'll find that my review is a lot more brief than I did last time. I'm just kind of wanting to remind you of where we came from, just as far as like the current theme, where we're at next in the, in the book of Romans. And so um, a couple of things to note, and if you're taking notes, that's great. If you don't have a pencil and pen, there are notepads over there. You're free to use them. The first thing I want to remind you about is something we looked at way back in John 1 when we were there. John 1 verse 12 said, Those that received Christ, they got the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. So the first thing is, everyone who believes in Jesus, we are now children of God. And when we get into Romans, part of what Romans is dealing with is a church where within that church there are those that came out of Judaism who have recognized their Messiah, but they still hold on to Judaism very closely. And then you have also Gentiles in Rome, and they're in the same church, they're mixed together, and they're wrestling through what does Christianity mean now? How important is Judaism for the Gentiles? What parts do they have to follow? Are we, are, is there a different status? Like, are the Jews of a different class than the Gentiles in the same church? So they're dealing with all those things. And Paul begins to say things like in Romans 2.28, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and His praise is not from men, but from God. And he continues to kind of show how the promises made to Abraham and to his descendants are now promises that are given freely to the entire church. Everyone who believes in Jesus, who is now, spiritually speaking, a descendant of Abraham, we're all children of God, we are the new kind of spiritual Israel. Um, I don't want to go, I know some of you are new, and so there's there's something called replacement theology where they believe that Christianity completely replaces the church. I am not completely there, just so you all know. I'm just explaining to you what Paul is getting. I'm not saying more than Paul is saying. I'm just saying what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that there's a sense in which all believers now are considered the people of God. And the true Jews are those who are of the heart circumcised. All believers who have separated themselves spiritually for God. We're now the people of God. His promises are now our promises. Um, and so Paul begins talking about this promise in Romans 4.13. The promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he'd be heir of the world. And that promise is kind of applied towards us, spiritually speaking. And it means for us the promise of eternal life. The promise of belonging to the family of God. Whether or not we are ethnically from, like biologically from Jewish descent we're not, like I'm not, Lindsay is. Both of us now are heirs to the promises of God through faith in Christ. It's a promise of salvation. It's a promise of being restored to God. It's a promise of knowing Him forever. And um, he says towards the end of Romans 4, see how much quicker that was? We're already on the end of 4. We're, we're going quick. The end of Romans 4, 
talking about Abraham, um, he begins to talk about the, the assurance of salvation because it's God promised to Abraham before Abraham did anything to obey God. He promised this to Abraham and then Abraham believed it and God considered Abraham righteous before he even was circumcised. And so in Romans 4.21, Abraham being fully assured that what God had promised, he's able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. And not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited. As those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then it says in verse 25, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. I ended with that verse last week. And I didn't explain in full detail what it meant because it fits in this transition of Romans 5 where we're headed. Paul kind of puts it there like a cliffhanger for what's happening next in Romans 5. And so the end of Romans 4, our takeaway was as believers we have assurance of salvation the same way that God promised to Abraham, and Abraham believed it, and he had full assurance that God was going to do it. In the same way, we, just by faith, not by works, have complete assurance of salvation. That was what Paul was getting at. Not by works, nothing we can earn, but just through faith, full assurance. And now this, this last verse in Romans 4, verse 25, this last point here, there is a distinction between the crucifixion and the resurrection as far as what it means for us. And there's a lot of different meanings, but what Paul's getting at here is the death of Christ is what paid for our sins, paid the full price of our sins, and gives us the ability to be forgiven because Christ was the sacrificial lamb. He is the one who paid the price for our sins. The resurrection is so important because if Christ had not raised, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, Verse 7, if Christ had not raised again, our faith would be vain and we'd still be dead in our sins. So the factual evidence that Christ did actually raise from the dead is everything. Because if that cannot be proven, then we're believing in a meaningless faith. That's what Paul is saying. It is meaningless if Christ did not raise from the dead. And part of why that is, is because Christ paid the full price of sin and the wages of sin is death. And death only has power as long as there's a debt to be paid. The fact that he paid the debt in full means there is no more debt to pay, which means death has no sin. And if he had remained dead, that would have meant that death still had a hold over him. But no, he paid the price fully and he rose again. So the resurrection is the evidence that the crucifixion paid it all. I'll just say it again in case you're taking notes. The resurrection is the evidence that the crucifixion paid it all. That's the end of chapter 4. So, now we're, we're closing this part of the this chapter of the story of what Paul's been going through when he began talking about God and man and where we came from and the problem of sin and the progression of sin and how all of us are to blame and how we can't judge anybody and Jew and Gentile are both like dead under sin. We cannot save ourselves by works then we're saved by faith. This whole section is closing now, and the new question is beginning to be asked, what now? If I have believed, and I have been forgiven, and I have been justified, which means just as if I never sinned, what does life look like now for the believer? That's what Paul is going to begin to talk about.
And so let's read a whole two verses. And then we're going to pray. And then we'll continue. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I, um, I ask you to bless everyone who's here in the name and the power of Jesus and by the help of the Holy Spirit that you would allow your truth to be obvious and to be um, clear so that we can understand it, so that nothing that I feel or I think that's just of me would dilute it or distort it, but that your truth would come out of these verses. And again, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so verse 1 is just basically Paul concluding all of what he's been leading up to in the last chapters. We've been justified by faith, just as if I never sinned, completely by faith, just by believing it, by receiving it in faith. And now, because of that, those who believe have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what's happened. And now, in verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So verse 1 is what happened, and verse 2 is what's next. Now that I'm saved, now that I'm a child of God, now that I've been justified, now that these promises are for me, now that I belong to the family of God, what does life look like? Is initial salvation the end of the story? Did Romans end at verse 4? Romans says, you're saved now, the rest is up to you to figure it out, good luck. No, it goes on. And you know, um, many churches kind of act like that is the end of your story. A lot of churches, they really focus a lot on the gospel, which is good, and they often end with some kind of altar call experience, which is good, sure, why not, make a profession, but then... Those that are saved, some churches don't really know what to do with them. And so they keep coming back, and every Sunday they keep hearing the same message, they keep hearing the, the gospel, and they keep seeing people come forward, and that's great, but years later, a lot of them begin to feel uneasy because they don't know what's next. They don't know how to actually live as a Christian. And so sometimes people that have been in that kind of church for, I don't know, 20 years, they still don't know much about what they believe. They haven't really made much progress in how well they know God and how mature they are in faith. They're not really able to disciple others that well. They can't really, you know, they just don't know how to deal even with some day-to-day -day things that are happening in their life. They're just, they keep hearing the same thing. And so even though your initial salvation, your initial decision to, to fall after Christ is huge and is climactic, it is not the end of the story. There's much more that comes next. And so, what we're going to look at in verse 2, there are at least three things that come next for the believer after they're being saved. There's probably more than that, but there are at least three. And so the first point I want to make from verse 2 
And before I go on, just real quick, just so you know, the reason why I'm only covering two verses is because that's how far my notes got before I realized that's all the time I have. And I think what's happening in this text is that Paul is changing themes here. All that we've been going through with from Romans 1 to 4, there's a huge transition happening in the theme. So this is almost like an introduction to the new book. You know, kind of how I, I take one Sunday and I introduce a new book sometimes and then we go into it. Um, that's kind of like what this feels like to me is these first two verses, kind of like Paul, were being introduced to what's going to be the next part of this book. So that's why it's just two verses. We normally cover a lot more than that. All right, so the first point that I want to make is now that you're saved, now that you're a believer, what's next? First, remember that it's just the beginning. That's the first point. Paul says we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace. So when you're saved, you have obtained the introduction into faith. It isn't the end, it's just the beginning. I once spoke with someone, I used to be in Taekwondo with Samuel, I spoke with somebody who had just gotten their black belt. So when you're rising up in the ranks in Taekwondo and you're like maybe halfway to a black belt, it's getting really hard, the patterns are getting longer, the sparring is getting more difficult, and you're like, it's going to take a lot to get the black belt. It's going to take forever. I've got to memorize all this stuff. It's really challenging. And I met this guy who had made it. And I was like, man, you finally did it. Like, you've made it. I was like, in my mind, you've arrived. And he's like, no, I've just begun. And I felt like, oh, give me some hope. Like, really? You get that far and you've just begun? But it's actually true. And I forgot that the senior instructor is a 7th degree black belt, been doing this for over 30 years, and becoming a black belt is just the beginning of that guy's journey if he's going to continue to rise up in the ranks. And with Christianity, it's, it's the same way. Um, in Christianity, it will be hard. You might feel like you've been at it for a long time, but along the way, you might end up feeling like it's, it's just the beginning. So coming to Christ is not the final chapter. There are those who have been walking much longer than you, who are Christian black belts, if you will, whom you can look to as guides to help you on your journey. That's part of the way Christ has set up things. The reason why God gives the church elders is because those people are further along, and they should be further along, to be able to help you. If you ever meet a church where there's like no one in the church that has any kind of depth, it may be because that pastor doesn't have any depth. He can't take them any deeper. And that's just the, the way the structure works. The church isn't going to grow deeper than the pastors in that church. So God has given you a local church. It might not be this one if you're, if you're visiting. But the, the idea behind the local church, the way God has designed it, is that this is how we are expected to grow in our faith. Once we're a believer, there are, God's going to put Christian black belts in your life. And they don't have to be the pastor. There might be someone in the church who just happens to have walked a whole lot longer than you. And maybe they're in a place where you can see yourself going that way one day. They might have a certain calling similar to yours. They might be able to disciple you better in that way. That's the way God's designed. You can't really get out of the fact that the way God designed things in the church is through discipleship that happens at the local church level. The way of growing into what God has called you to be is through the local church. That's by design. You can see that through all of Scripture. In this age of the internet, 
we can find all kinds of great resources online to help us in our callings. And I, I do that too. I love listening to certain preachers. I love have, I follow certain websites that have great resources that help me in my journey. But that is not the same thing as being part of a local church. There's a, a disconnect that happens online that doesn't give you the kind of personal fellowship and personal accountability you need in your walk to get to the next level of your faith. It just cannot happen by just having these very distant, very severed connections to things that are just happening out there on the internet. They can be great resources, but that wouldn't be enough all by itself to help you in your faith. That's the way God designed it, what we see all throughout Scripture. You need to belong to a church that can help you in your calling. If you never come, for example, here's a good test. Are you in the right church? If you never come to your pastor for advice on anything, chances are you don't see them as somebody you trust to take you to that next step. And I say that out of, out of care because as a believer, all of us should be asking ourselves, what is God calling me to do? What, what does he have me to do? He hasn't taken me to heaven yet. I haven't died and gone to him. So as long as I'm here, there must be some purpose for me, for his kingdom. What, what are my gifts? What are my passions? And if you don't know at all, that's something the local church should be helping you with as well. Help me know what my gifts might be. Help me know ways that I can serve God. Help me know things that I can be doing in my walk to grow closer to Him. But if you have an idea about what you're called to do, you should also be able to come to your pastor and say, I need resources. I have questions. Help me understand biblically what this calling means. What does the Bible say about this? You should be able to be in a church that gives you. That, that's what the church is there for. It's to help you grow in that way. So you should belong to a local church that can help you grow. So just another thing, you know, if your pastor is not committed to Scripture, if he's teaching his own ideas, if he has a hidden agenda, if he's looking out for his own interests, if he's not helping you understand the Scriptures, if he's not opening the Word regularly to explain things to you, I wouldn't follow that kind of pastor. Follow a pastor you can trust is going to go to the Word on issues and can actually offer you things that help you grow. It's very important for you. And it's not that pastors have arrived either. That's just the way God designed it. He designed elders or pastors to be that for the church. But they themselves also need that. And so, for example, myself, I've surrounded myself with pastors that are further along than I am, that know more than I do, who I trust spiritually, I trust their heart for God, I trust their commitment to Scripture, and I go to them regularly. I can ask for prayer. I can ask them questions. I can meet. I can be, I can be accountable to them. Um, so pastors need that too. They're not above reproach. They're not better than anybody else. They also need it. But within the structure of a church setting, the design is that the people in the church can look to their leaders, their spiritual leaders. And that's also what the Bible talks about. The older men teaching the younger men and the older women teaching the younger women, there's a design in place where the expectation is that the further along you walk with God, the more experience you have, you should be giving that out to the younger people and raising them up so they can do the same. There's a structure in place for that. So, um, and there is something I've been praying about for the last few weeks that I want to share because of this. And it kind of fits within this theme of it is just the beginning. We are being introduced to the faith, and now how do you grow? Um, we do what's called expository preaching here. We preach verse by verse through the Bible, and I'm committed to that, and I'm going to keep doing that. But I have found something I believe is 
a flaw with that model if that's all the church is doing. Um, and the flaw is this. When you go straight through verse by verse, you are teaching the entire Bible, but over a long period of time. And that doesn't often give you the chance to speak about regular, basic, Christian, fundamental things often. So the last time I may have spoken about end times was whenever that came up in the text. The last time I may have spoken about the gifts of the Holy Spirit was when that might have come up in the text. And it might have been months ago since that happened. Um, and there are areas where um, I think questions come up about what does the Bible say about this that I don't feel like are, you know, if you only do topical teaching, then you might only hear those things. and You might never get to grow deeper in your faith. So I get that that can be a problem. And most churches do topical teaching, which is why we do it this way. It's important that you're taught the entire Word of God. But I feel like churches also need to have something in place to be able to speak to those, those, those main questions Sometimes, at least a little bit, um, and it, it, it causes me to feel like I may have failed in some sense the fact that we're almost three years into this, and I don't often speak to some of those things. Um, questions like, for example, what is the local church? What's the purpose of the local church? What is the role of elder and pastor? What are they responsible to before God? What are their duties towards the church? How should a church be towards the pastor? What, is all that, what does that look like? Um, what about church finances? Like, why doesn't Eli get paid? And why doesn't he want to get paid? And, like, that seems kind of odd to me. Like, what's that all about? We don't talk about those things very often. What does the Bible say about spiritual gifts? Are they still relevant to, for today? Or do they end with the apostles like some churches teach? Um, what does the Bible say about the last days? You know, there are areas where there are disagreements in Christian circles about different kinds of teachings. What's this church's position on some issue? Those are things that we don't really talk very often about that I think that a church should know. You should know things like, why am I doing this in my home? You might want to know what my testimony is or how I grew up. You might want to know those things. You might want to know what is your plan for this church in five years or what is your view on this or what would the church, what would your perspective be on? What if this happened in your church? What would you do about that? Or I've got a friend who said this. What do you think about that? Like, you know, When you just go verse by verse, you don't get to actually handle some of those things very often. And the result is that sometimes it feels to me like there are a lot of different views happening in this church that I want to be able to clarify what the position is going to be as far as this church is concerned. And I think that is important for a church to do that. So I'm sensing the need to do that. And part of why I haven't is because you know, I've had this plan to like finish this a little booklet for the church on like what the gospel is, a little 10-chapter thing on this is the gospel. And then I kind of wanted to do some kind of weekend class where we could go through that point by point so that you all knew like this is the gospel, this is this church's deal, what the gospel is. And then from that point, I wanted to kind of see maybe branching out in different areas of like discipleship and training and certain things. And maybe, maybe some of those common things might come up, but um, it's taking longer than I wanted to finish that book that I wanted to do for you all. And so I don't want necessarily to wait another year before we can discuss some of those things. So I just wanted to express that this morning and say that if you've had questions that I haven't answered, I, I'm sorry that I haven't done that. Um, but I'm also wondering if it might be helpful to offer some sort of like QA session, maybe sometime, maybe once, maybe more than once, not on a Sunday, but during the week, maybe where you can come together as a church and say, 
what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And you can bring all your hard questions. And if I don't know the answer, I can at least look into it. But it might give us some sort of opportunity to, to have some of those discussions about, like, you know, where are we headed? Or what is this all about? Or, you know, what's your view of that? Um, so I'm mentioning it, but I'm not going to do it unless I get feedback from you that you actually would be interested in that. I don't need to force you guys to do anything, but if you would be interested in that kind of like QA session, that would be great. Let me know about that. Um, the other thing that's made me think about is there's this book by a guy named Richard Baxter back in the 1600s, and he part of what he felt like a pastor should be doing is visiting the church people in their homes every so often to ask them questions like, how you doing? How can I pray for you? What questions do you have? And he also called it private instruction. He would actually help them understand some certain area of doctrine, and then he'd ask them to repeat it back and see if they'd gotten it. It was very important that he, there was a, a relational aspect to teaching, not just a pulpit aspect to teaching. And I haven't done enough of that either. There's somebody that I haven't really visited in the home in months. And so um, I do work a full-time job, so it does limit my time, but I am prayerfully considering that. So if you want me to come to your house, please invite me. That way I don't need to invite myself, but chances are I'm going to invite myself if you don't. If you go here, I, I feel like that's part of what I should be doing is visiting you all in your homes and having some of those one-on-one -on -one times. So anyway, you know, back to the point here. Point number one is that this is just the beginning. If you've recently come to the faith, this is just the beginning. And there's a whole lot ahead for you. There wasn't the final chapter. There's a whole lot ahead. And... I'd love to be part of that journey with you. I'd love it if you would open up to me and let me be part of that and ask me questions and use me and abuse me as a resource for you so that you can grow in your faith. So point number two about what's next is we remain confident. Again in verse two, he said, we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So to stand is a symbol of confidence. Watching this video this week of this guy that this crowd came up and they were clearly going to beat him up and he knew it, there's just no chance, you know. And so he just says, okay. And he just lays down and he kind of curls into a ball and just like waits for it, you know. And that's exactly the symbol of not being confident, just laying down and curling into a ball. So what he's saying here is that we've been introduced into this faith into this, or by faith into this grace by which we stand. He's saying we stand in this grace. There's a, there's a confidence that comes from this, and we can remember why he's saying it. Because he was talking about Abraham in the last chapter, and Abraham's confidence that he believed that God could fulfill the promise, that God would do it, and he was confident in that. It said in verse uh, 18 of chapter 4, hope against hope he believed. And then in verse 19, he did not become weak in faith. In verse 20, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. Verse 21, being fully assured. So God had promised Abraham the outcome, and Abraham believed it. And not only did that, did it, did, not only did God say he was righteous because he believed, but what Paul's also saying is that same faith also gave him confidence to stand. After being called righteous, he remained confident to stand. And we stand in confidence as well because God didn't just do this initial work in us like spinning a top and then letting it spin on its own. He's not just hands off now. It says in Philippians 1.6 that he who began the work in you will be faithful to complete it. And so 
We have this confidence. And Paul said in Philippians 1, 6, I am confident of this very thing, so we can stand in that grace. God began the work in you, and God's going to perfect the work in you. And it's so important to, to not overlook this point of confidence because we're going to struggle. Our works didn't save us, and our works don't keep us saved, and through our works we can't lose that salvation either. But we are going to struggle in this life, and it's not just exterior struggle. It's not just persecution. We will have that. We will have those that don't understand our calling. We will have those that oppose us in our calling. Even in the church, we'll have those that seem to oppose us in our calling. But not just that. We're going to have temptations. We're going to have sinful struggles we deal with. And we're going to have to figure out, like, how do we make it? What's next for a believer? Do we just never sin anymore? Is that what it means to be saved? We don't, we don't sin anymore. If I do sin, do I question my salvation? No, we, we stand by faith in this grace. We're in this grace in which we stand by faith. And it's so important. And so as far as struggling in the faith, as far as trials and temptations and persecution, this point is very helpful to us. We stand, we remain confident and it's by faith and it's by grace. It's not because we're better. It's not because we're something special. It's because of His grace that He's given freely and we're just by faith in this thing. And so the final point about this, which also kind of helps in our current struggles, is point number three, hope in your resurrection. Hope in your resurrection. The last part of verse two, we exult in hope in the glory of God. When Paul says glory of God here, he's talking about the resurrection because I've read ahead. And if, once we get there together, you'll see in Romans 8, that's what he's talking about. Romans 8 makes it very clear. He's talking about hope. and He's talking about how we struggle in this present time, but we just can't wait for the revealing of the glory of God, like the glory of God. He's talking about this future hope we have when all the struggles of now are gone away. All our fleshly struggles are gone away. All our sinful desires is done away with. All the struggles around us, all the death, all the pain out there in the world, it's all going to be that, that, that hope of resurrection when all the pain of the present is gone. That hope, that's what he's talking about. And we exult in that. Who knows what exult means? That's an older word. Is it close to exult? No. Oh. Exulting is being happy. Yeah. Joyful. It's an old-fashioned word. That's why she knew it. <laughs> it's an old-fashioned word that basically means rejoice and feel excited about something. Well, excited about what? We exult in what? The hope. In hope of the glory of God. So this refers, this refers to our resurrection. And it's a very important aspect of our faith that Paul, like I said, is going to get into in these next chapters. Um, especially as we get into Romans 6. 6, 7, 8, and all that. There's this the position we're in right now as Christians, we're in this like now but not yet situation because there's a, an aspect in which Paul will say you were baptized into Christ Jesus, which by the way, baptism is one of those topics we don't talk about enough. And if you haven't been baptized and you're a believer, you should be. Sorry, I meant to say that earlier. But again, like there's, I think there's a need to be able to have those conversations. Anyway, Romans 6 are talking about when you're baptized into Christ Jesus, you, your old man is dead. You've died, your old life is dead, you were crucified with Christ, and you're a new creation. But he doesn't, he doesn't say like, you were dead and now you're a new creation. And it's where he says, you were dead and now consider yourself 
alive in Christ. Or, and now, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. But wait a minute, if I was dead, then how could sin still reign? And so there's this now and not yet because even though the price has been paid and we've been justified and spiritually speaking, our old man is dead, we're still walking around in this flesh and we're awaiting this hope of final resurrection where we get to really be finally the new creation with no more baggage of the sinful life we're in now. So the struggles of the flesh right now are because we're in this now and not yet state. And, and there is tension there. And Paul even says like the whole creation is groaning. He'll say, and I think it's Romans 8, that we're all just awaiting this final resurrection. There's no more sin, no more death, no more sadness, no more tears, no more struggle. That's the hope of the resurrection. And you know, there's a song that came on this morning on the soundtrack that I love so much. It's a Bethel song. And you know, I've got to tell you, even though some of Bethel's theology really bothers me, some of their songs are just stinking amazing. And this song, these lyrics, this song, Ever Be, it goes into, it's basically like, a, it's, it's a wedding. It's talking about Christ and the, and the wedding ring and like us as the bride awaiting him. And like, I mentioned that song once before when we were teaching through John 14. And I still just love that song because of the symbolism. When you read John 14, and if you want to do a private study on this, if you haven't, look at a Jewish wedding and all the traditions that go into a Jewish wedding. And look at the, the way Christ talks in John 14 about I'm going to my father's house where there's many I'm going to prepare a place for you I'm going to come back for you that where I am you can be also this is all wedding language this is all Jewish traditional wedding language and so that song will ever be this whole idea of like us as a church being the bride of Christ and are, are hoping that when he returns he's going to take us to be with him so that where he is we can be also and it's this amazing picture and I know as dudes it can be hard to tap into that feminine side but that's an amazing picture that we are as a church, the bride of Christ. And so I, I love that. And so that's what he's talking about here. We exult in this hope of the glory of God. We, we're excited. We're, we, just, we need to recognize that when he returns for us and takes us home with him, all the sadness goes away, all the struggle goes away, all the, all the pride, all the sin, all the pain, it all goes away. So that was point three about what's next, hoping in the resurrection. So we have these three things that we've been looking at. Um, and I wrote them differently in the conclusion, so I'm going to go back to the original points just so I make sure I, if you were writing, but I don't want to speak. The point number one, as I said it originally was, we must remember that it's just the beginning. And point two was, we remain confident in grace by faith. And then point number three was, we hope in our resurrection. And so, it's grace that saved you, and it is grace that keeps you, like it says in Jude. He can keep you. No matter how far you've come, there are greater things ahead. It's just the beginning. So we stand confident in His grace, and we rejoice or exult in the hope of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we as a church grow together, that you would help us to be a church that is a family that is accountable to one another, that esteems others more than ourselves, that understands the importance of humility and love, that understands that 1 Corinthians 13 is not a marriage chapter to the church and how a church ought to love one another. And I pray that we would grow, that we would learn about our gifts 
and that we would be able to grow in those gifts together as a family, not separate on our own in our own lives, but that we would be a church that recognizes what a church is supposed to be together. And God, I ask for everyone here that you would continue to guide them and lead them, show them how they can be used by you today and this week. Start taking them on those steps, that, that way you want them to go in their life, the, the, the path you have them on, help them onto those next steps so they can see more of what's coming. Help us to have confidence and grace. Help us not get discouraged when things are tough or when we're struggling with sin. Help us to keep going, to be confident and to rejoice in the hope of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in His presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.